I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Wadundi and Bububun people of Woodachup in the southwest Bujara region in Noongar Buja, also known as Margaret River. I acknowledge their continuing connection to the land, waters and community. I pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. This is actually part two of episode 52, talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. This is a continuation of obviously part one of episode 52, talking about pornography, particularly my opinions about pornography and these opinions are not definitive or concrete by any means. It's, uh, like I said in the first episode, just pretty much a stream of consciousness style conversation uh, with myself about all the nuances and ins and outs of porn and all the conversations that I feel like get mm, sidelined or swept under the rug or totally just missed when we break down our opinions on porn into good versus bad, black versus white, anti-porn versus pro-porn. So in the first part, uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, I would definitely suggest so you've got a bit of context going into this part. But in the first part, I talk about mainstream pornography uh, versus ethical pornography, uh, the definition of porn and how that is problematic. I talk a little bit about the kind of feminist representation of porn and some producers that are coming through and doing that. I offer a thought experiment regarding uh, the production of porn, particularly um, ethical porn, I suppose, and where the line gets crossed and what your thoughts might be on that. And in this episode, I'm going to continue on with a couple of those things, talk a little bit about um, the porn and video game relationship, uh, which is like a a bit of an uh, extension and extrapolation of the porn is a drug analogy, which I spoke about a bit in the first episode. So there's a, there's a few other things that I touch on um, just to kind of bring a bit more nuance into the conversations. So again, I enjoyed doing this. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to part one and you'll enjoy listening to part two as well. It is the teacher's duty to enlighten their students on the commonly accepted standards of sexual behavior. These sperm cells are carried through the tubes in a thick colorless liquid called semen and at certain times are expelled through the penis. Side effects include headache, flushing, upset stomach and abnormal vision. To avoid long-term injury, seek immediate medical help for an erection lasting more than four hours. I guess before I want to introduce video games, there's like, you know, this idea that um, porn escalates into you seeking out a sex worker and then you seeking out like more intense stimulation and then you wanting to watch child porn and then becoming a child molester, you know, really intense, heavy stuff. And, and like that first claim you're just seeking out, you know, acting these things in real life, either with your partner or a common one is with a sex worker. I use the term sex worker, but a lot of these anti-porn advocates or activists will say intentionally they'll use that word prostitute. Um, 
because they're anti-sex work as well. And they think that sex work is um, inherently wrong and objectifying. Um, and so within the sex work conversation, obviously porn comes into it because you're getting paid to to have sex. Just so you're still you know, engaged in sex work. Um, it's like that's couched in this whole conversation as well as this implied detrimental nature of sex work and like how sex work is wrong and um, and so that's just another kind of side of the conversation which oftentimes gets swept under the rug as well um, and just tossed you know the, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater so to speak and and you know thrown under the bus um, even though there's plenty of independent and um, amazing sex, work, sex workers doing incredibly healing work. And even the sex workers that aren't doing healing, providing a, a service and they're just, you know, sex work is work as the, as the famous kind of um, saying goes, like they're, they're working and they deserve rights and they deserve um, regulations and, and legislation to help them out. Um, tossed out when you say that oh if you watch porn you go and see a sex worker and that's bad um but that's a, that's another conversation and i'm hoping to interview some sex workers uh, on the podcast coming up to kind of have those conversations um but in any case there's this um there's this implied causation right and so here's where we get a little bit analytical is like you know if you watch porn, this will happen to you. This is the way it works. Um, this idea that watching porn causes you to go and see a sex worker or causes you to seek something more intense, causes you to become this, right? Causation. Which we cannot definitively prove, right? Causation's usually pretty hard to prove in a sociological or, or psychological context. Correlation, on the other hand, is easier to demonstrate. So correlation is this idea that, oh, there's a link between people who watch porn and people that use or access uh, the services of sex workers, right? people that see sex. There's a correlation between those two things. People that watch porn and people that see sex workers. There's a link. That's, you know, sure, that's probably been demonstrated, right? In fact, it has been demonstrated. Um, what the, um, where the problem arises is like, okay, well, which direction is that correlation? Which direction is that link? Is it um the the porn that this person has watching has uh contributed to their inclination or has contributed to their decision to to go and see a sex worker or because they uh, is it because they they were already someone who was going to go and see a sex worker but they just happen to watch porn as well right and they're more likely to watch porn because they're more sex positive or they're more um, interesting sex drive and so they watch more porn you know in in what direction is that 
that relationship and what direction is the correlation. And, and this can kind of be really exemplified when we talk about violence. All right, so um, yeah, that, uh, that, that watching violent porn makes you violent. All right, watching degrading, abusive, objectifying porn makes you an objectifier and a degrader, right? Makes you violent. That's the, that's the way it's often framed. But could it also be true or could it be true instead that people, inherently violent people, watch violent porn? They were already violent and so they sought out that particular type of porn, right? That's, you know, because just because it doesn't mean that one caused the other. That's where correlation and causation becomes um, conflated. And, and here's where I want to bring in video games because this is an interesting, you know, I'm not saying that porn and video are the same, but they share a lot of similarities. Uh, and in fact, in fact, in fact, in fact um, you know, they have similar neurological effects. Right? There's a study from 2012, Yao et al. saying that video games and uh, you know, the link between video games and dopamine, similar study, Park et al. And I know Gary Wilson was a part of that study as well um, from Your Brain and Porn, saying that there's a link between porn and dopamine and the reward circuitry. So they have and Voss et al. in 2015 kind of made the same statement. So, yeah, there's there's neurobiological similarities in the effects of video games and pornography on the reward circuitry, on the squirts of dopamine that you get when you porn and also when you shoot a bad guy. <laughs> I don't play first-person shooters. So I'm not a gamer, unfortunately. Um, I only play FIFA. And that's also something that I'll talk about in a second. Um, they're also similar diagnostically as well in terms of um, uh, in terms of like the way porn compulsion or porn addiction and video game addiction and video game internet gaming disorder and things like that are, are diagnosed. Although using so from Block in two thousand and eight um, to quote uh, the original formal proposal for internet addiction to be included in the DSM-5 incorporated the subtypes of instant messaging, pornography use, and video. So diagnostically, they were considered very similar, if not the same. Um, and the criterion that you needed to meet in order to be diagnosed with those were put forward as the same. Uh, in terms of uh, legality and the way the legal system uh, judges, porn and video games. There's been similarities there. Uh, in Brown versus the Entertainment Merchants Association uh, in California, uh, the, the California Supreme Court, they struck down some 2005 California laws banning the sale of violent video games. Uh, and that law was enacted under the idea that um, because there was regulations and regulatory laws regarding pornography, that um, because porn was equated with video games, that they could enact the regulations and restrictions on video game sales. 
Uh, and then that was, you know, so that was enacted. And then the Supreme Court, um, Brown versus the Entertainment Merchants Association struck down that law. So in a legal, from a legal point of view, from a legal similar. Uh, there's also a similar public perception. There's a couple of couple of studies, um, Atkins, Atkinson and Rogers, 2016, and um, Gugersberg in 2020, talking about the public perception of, of porn and video games being very similar. Interact with young people, the concerns that they're having. So, um, why am I why am I saying all this? Right, um, because something that I'm interested in and I don't see a lot of is anti-porn activists not also being anti-video games right i mentioned that at the start of my at the start of my conversation with you is like i'm not anti-porn not anti-drug and i'm also not anti-video game but if you are anti-porn to be kind of philosophically or logically consistent are you also anti-video game um and so someone who was famously anti-porn and anti-video game was um, now disbarred attorney Jack Thompson, uh, who, who uh, I, I won't go too deep into his his whole story, uh, but he put a uh, a lot of effort in banning video games, and the reason why he was disbarred is for a whole bunch of things that he made disparaging remarks, and he falsely claimed a bunch of stuff about video game producers and and yada yada yada. Um, interesting case study is the the crossover between anti-porn and anti-video games or anti-games or anti-gaming um but there's this you know like i said there's this acceptance or it's it's kind of vastly more accepted um games are in society than pornography is which i find quite interesting um again like i'm i wonder and uh, maybe this is like a bit of what aboutism here, like what about video? And so I acknowledge that. Um, I just think it's an interesting um, equivalency to draw, uh, and and I wonder why there isn't such. Uh, maybe there is. Maybe I just don't see it. But you know, I don't see a lot of anti-porn people vehemently uh, also be anti-gaming. Um, and there, there was an interesting study that I found from 2015. Um, Soya et al. Uh, and I'll read out this statement, which was I found really. And I want to kind of just briefly draw your attention to it, which is players who enacted in-game violence through a heroic character exhibited less post-game aggression than players who enacted comparable levels of in-game violence through an anti. Effects were not attributable to self-activation or character identification identification mechanisms, but were consistent with social cognitive context effects on the interpretation of behavior. These results contrast anxiety mechanisms assertion that violent video games affect aggression through a generalized activation mechanism. From an applied perspective, consumer choices may be aided by considering not just game, but the context in which content is portrayed. So, you know, there was these guys playing video games. Um, in one video game, they were the hero and they were, you know, heroically killing. 
in another game, they were the anti-hero, they were the villain, and they were they were killing the good guys. And in you know follow-up uh, surveys and and questionnaires, the the guys who played as the hero who were killing all the uh, you know they, they were doing justifiable violence, you might say, they uh, exhibited less post-game aggression. Right, they were less aggressive. Um, compared to the players, they might have still been a little bit more aggressive, less aggressive compared to the guys who were playing as the villain. They were more aggressive than the guys who were playing as the hero. Right, so the context within um, that scenario games was important for how they showed up afterwards and how it affected them. I think that is really interesting because I think it can also be applied to the porn that you're watching because there are different contexts for porn. There can be ethically produced hardcore pornography, right? The context of the intensity of those sex acts is what is important, right? Not the sex acts necessarily themselves. Um, So I think the thing that I don't think is being applied to porn, again, because of the whole... um, let's say, uh, the whole lack of clarity around defining pornography and, defi- and defining violence. Is- That's another problem in research is how are, we, how are we defining violence? Is it consensual spanking, right? Is, a, is spanking a violent act? I know that it has been used as a violent act in some porn research versus choking versus, you know, and, and all this other stuff. So I saw that was an interesting... Um, little insight there with regards to like the context of m- the media that you're watching or, or in terms of video games playing and how that affects your aggression and violence afterwards. I presume as well. So I'll be thinking, is it, you know, again, I, I referred to what about isn't before, like what about video games? And, and that might be a bit um, of a uh, faux pas to do. And so like you might be asking, is it well, you can't compare video games to pornography. And the reason, you know, one of the reasons why, because I'm trying to like imagine that I'm talking to someone right now, again, like a fireside chat um, over a coffee, the um, you know, an argument could be made like you compare video games to porn because of the amount of exploitation in the, pornogra- uh, in the pornograph, oh, I can't even talk, in the porn industry, in the pornography industry. Um, right, like I said, I don't want to dismiss or diminish the harm that might have been done that has been done and that probably will continue to be done in some areas of the porn industry right although Pornhub for example has made um, some steps some strides towards and um, and I suppose aiding in the type of content that's available and where that content is coming from you know, some might say it's too little, too late, and that the, the damage has already been acknowledged that some damage has been done. Um, and there's also, you know, damage has been done in the gaming industry as well. And again, I don't want to go down this whole route of talking about um, also exploitation in, in the video gaming industry, um, which is important to, to acknowledge. I don't want to say the two are the same. I don't want to say one is more than the other. Exploitation is um, 
but to that you know argument that could be made of oh you can't compare the two well i'd say they're probably a little bit more comparable than we give them credit for the porn industry and the gaming industry but i don't see same anti anti video game rhetoric or anti porn rhetoric being used um by people that identify as anti porn so i just think that's quite an interesting uh, little little sidebar little tidbit uh, something that i'd be i'd be you know interested to dive a bit more into with people that identify as anti porn so again that same question you know do violent video games people violent or do violent people play violent video games same question can be asked of porn does violent porn make people sexually violent or do sexually violent people watch violent porn? the correlation direction there um yeah yeah so tired talking um Again, I wish I was talking with someone and, and hopefully in future conversations, I'll have someone here to, to talk to. But um, but there's like conversations around porn that I think are really important. There's like, what type of porn are people consuming? Right? Are they being ethical consumers? And how are they consuming? So there's a what question and a how question. So the what question, as we've kind of talked about already, is like, what type of porn? Is it inclusive? Does it have healthy messages? Is it ethical? Is it fair? Is it consensual? All these really important and positive things. All right. So what if people start, you know, again, stopping the demand versus changing the demand? What if we, what if we help people change the demand? for this type of porn to educate more people about that type of porn to help them make more ethical consumer choices like we do with the food that they eat like we do with the clothes that they buy like we do with the other media that they watch right like hollywood movies things like this what if we change the way or we encourage people to change the way that they consume porn as consumers I think that's a really important conversation. Hopefully, I've touched on some of the reasons why that's important throughout this conversation. Um, and I think that is slowly changing. I think the more we talk about it, the more people become aware of it, um, the more that is that kind of shift. And I did find this study, Shaw and Cedar from 2019, and I'll, I'll quote, uh, we did not find any consistent uptick in aggressive content over the past decade. In fact, the average video today contains shorter segments. Second, videos containing aggressive acts are both less likely to receive views and less likely to be ranked favorably by viewers who prefer videos where women clearly perform pleasure. So that just that last sentence there clearly perform pleasure so not it might not be real pleasure again there's still more education to do there's still more um conversations to be had there's still more um signal boosting of feminist ethical porn to do. 
but I think we are seeing a little bit of a shift. I think as people become more aware of it, as it becomes more acceptable to pay for porn, for example, to have that show up on your credit card, to talk about, you know, ethical, beautiful, sensual, softcore, hardcore porn, right, that's produced from these people um, as it's more appropriate to talk about those things as it becomes more acceptable to talk about those things we'll see a bit more of a shift i want to contribute to as well one of the reasons why i'm having these conversations but then the other question that i posed is like how are people consuming so that was the what how are they consuming and by this i mean you know and i, I said this at the very start of the conversation by this i mean like I don't support the way that men um, are masturbating to pornography. Like just fucking, you know, I speak to men a lot. Right? And, you know, I don't support the whole idea of like sitting down in front of a computer screen, hunched over, one hand on the mouse, the other hand in your cock and just jerking away like a chimpanzee going through and clicking on videos and, and, and just being disconnected to your body closed down and, and you know, tense in the forearm and the shoulders. What I do think, because I don't think that's healthy, beneficial to just be in that position, stagnant, stationary. You know, I, I don't think it's helpful. What I do think is healthy, what I do think is helpful, what I do think is beneficial and what I do support is, again, ethical porn, not the mainstream shit. And when you are using it, self-pleasuring rather than masturbating. What I mean by this is like, you know, self, the beauty of self-pleasure, it can look like whatever you want. It can possibly look like that depiction that I've just shared sitting down at the computer screen. But very often when we shift from masturbation to self-pleasure, and this is a whole another conversation, it looks like something that's a bit more full-bodied and it might not even include genital touch. So something I say to guys um, when I introduce them to the concept of ethical porn and when I say, look, if you're going to use porn, you know, I can't stop you in the privacy of your own. So here's the porn that I would recommend using instead is I tell them to stand up. I tell them to put their computer screen up on a shelf or put their phone up on a shelf. And instead of sitting down and being hunched over the computer, Stand, start to move your body a little bit more and start to change the way that you're using the porn, right? How are you using it? Are you using it just fucking stationary and stagnant, just going, going through the motions? Or are you embodying your eroticism as a tool, right? Mindfully, intentionally using ethical porn as a tool to get aroused, to build that fantasy in your body, to build those sensations of pleasure and to start moving them around, Right? When you start treating porn as a tool, like you enjoy as a tool that amplifies your arousal, that offers you a novel stimulation and sensation, you can start to shift the way that you relate to that porn or to that tool. And rather than become reliant on that tool, right? rather than become reliant on the porn, you use it as a way to go inwards. And, and notice your own eroticism, notice your own pleasure, right? And this is not something that just happens overnight. 
takes a little bit of guidance and it's something that I work with men on. But using it as a using it mindfully as a tool to explore your eroticism, to explore your arousal. And I've got a whole podcast on this exact topic, healthy with Joseph Kramer. I believe it's episode number or 15 maybe of this podcast. Um, Joseph Kramer talks about erotic embodiment or porn yoga as he originally called it. And, and that's not being having as well. Like we tend to just assume that, and maybe it's a, it's a valid assumption because a lot of men are using porn, you know, using mainstream porn and using it, you know, like they, like I described at their desk, just hunched over fucking jerking off. But what if we were to change that as well? What if we said it's okay to fucking stand up and, and rub oil all over your body while you're watching porn or what even, what, what porn like porn's also very auditory so what if you just lower the laptop screen plug your headphones in and listen to the pornography that's that's playing on screen and you're getting all that auditory sensation that that really um being quite erotic and quite arousing and you use porn like that as a tool uh or um you know what if you what if you uh Use porn for the first five minutes, uh, get yourself aroused, get yourself turned on, and then stop it, turn away from the porn, look at start touching your body and start, you know, feeling aroused and, and carrying that arousal from that porn into your self-pleasuring in front of a mirror. Again, I have these conversations with with Joseph on on that podcast. So I won't go too deep into them here, but we can use porn differently, right? We can use different porn and we can use porn differently, right? Two separate conversations, interrelated, but also separate. Uh, and so like a rule of thumb that I usually share with men um, started is try using porn less, firstly, right? Oftentimes, every time that men masturbate they and self-pleasure, they watch porn. But try using porn 20% of the time as a, as a thumb. Use porn 20% of the time that you're masturbating or self-pleasuring. So if you masturbate five times a week, use porn once a week. If you masturbate for an hour, use porn for minutes out of that hour, right? And so then you're not becoming reliant. Then you're not becoming dependent upon this thing, this external thing for your arousal. And again, that takes a little bit of... um, weaning and going back to the porn as a drug analogy which i see a lot of people you know putting forward if it is a drug and we're just telling people to go cold turkey right just stop watching porn like that's that's not a very for like coming off a drug for example like you wouldn't just tell a heroin addict right and porn has been compared to heroin you wouldn't just tell a heroin addict to just stop taking heroin. Just, you know, not give them any support or any uh, any other strategies for for helping them come off this hard substance. But that's what we're doing for, for porn. Um, yes, I know there's some and addiction centers out there for specifically treating porn, quote unquote, addiction. But- for the most part, there's there's just kind of this push to like just stop watching, and it's like, okay, but if we're saying that it's this intense you know, 
I don't know. I don't know. I just think that's an interesting thing that people are doing as well is like instead of treating it as like going cold turkey, why don't you treat it as like the weaning off method, which is typically way more effective, especially for more addictive substances born as an addictive substance, then the weaning off method might be more um, beneficial, let's say, if that's the model that you're going with. And so if I'm talking to guys about porn and they self-label as an addict and that's the schema that they use to identify their porn viewing, then I will use with them particularly a weaning off strategy and say, hey, instead of using porn every single time that you masturbate, let's you know experiment with once or twice of you. How does that feel? What happens? What was the what was the sensations? Right? And obviously there'll be some things to to work through there. And then wean it off. And then I say, you know, general rule of thumb is 20% of the time. So just another conversation that I don't think people are really having. And maybe a consideration that people aren't taking into account when it comes to this whole boiling down of porn into anti versus pro porn. So there's a lot of things there, <laughs> a lot of things. And I, I want to wrap this up and just reiterate my position. I'm not anti-porn. I'm not pro-porn. I'm anti-anti-porn, that's for sure. Um, and I just think there's a lot more nuance to the conversation of pornography. This was by no means a comprehensive or extensive look pornography and all the facets of it um hopefully there was a bit of food for thought in here maybe it introduces you some perspectives that you hadn't considered i'm by no means trying to convince anyone of anything i by no trying to uh convert anyone to a certain position this is like i said just an opportunity for me on my own platform in my own house drinking my own coffee to share my own about pornography and um, maybe it's a bit of mental masturbation on my behalf as well. So if you made it this far, thank you for listening and thank you for, if you've been listening to the podcast, supporting the podcast. This is episode number 52. My first solo episode as well, uh, Men's Sex and Pleasure podcast has been an absolute joy to, to put together. Thank you to all the guests over the last year for being on. I've had some absolute cracker conversations and I've learned so much and it's opened my up to a whole bunch of different perspectives. And, and that's something I hope to do for the listeners as well is just introduce some new perspectives to you too. So thank you again for listening and thank you for tuning in and supporting this work. Super grateful. Thank you so much.